Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 34. Let's start with reading the text. It says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Well, we've been studying the book of Matthew, and specifically chapters 8 and 9 contain this organization of Jesus' miracles. What, what Matthew is doing in Matthew 8 and 9, is he's building a case for the Christ. In other words, the tax collector opens his ledger and he balances the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament and the fulfillment of them in Jesus' miracles. It's almost like he takes Isaiah and the miracles of Jesus Christ and he aligns them. Let me show you what I, what I mean. God promised through the prophet Isaiah that the anointed one, the Christ, would have power over sickness. Isaiah 53, he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Isaiah 35, he will make the lame to leap like a deer. Isaiah 40, he will give power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he will increase his Strength. Well, what did we see Jesus do? In Matthew, he cleansed the leper. He raised two paralyzed people. He healed Peter's mother-in-law, an unclean woman, and many more. In Matthew 8, verses 1 to 17, and 9, verses 1 to 8, Jesus has power over sickness. Well, God promised his anointed one would also have power over nature. In Isaiah 43, he would make a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Isaiah 35, he'll use waters for blessing and bring vegetation and streams to deserts. What do we see Jesus do? He stops the storm with a word. He calms the waters with a word. He has power over nature. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. God promised that His anointed one would have power over dark forces, over the satanic. In Isaiah 24, He will punish the demonic host. In chapter 27, He will punish the serpent and kill the dragon. Jesus casts out many, uh, many spirits 
and casts out the legion of demons with a word. Matthew 8, 28-34. He has power over the satanic. Let's continue. God promised that His anointed one will have power over sin. That He will put an end to sin. Isaiah 43, He will blot out your transgressions and He will not remember your sins. Jesus declares the paralytic forgiven. And His mission is declared as well. He is to call sinners to repentance. Matthew 9, 1-13. Jesus displays power over sin. God promised His anointed one would have power over death. He would be the one to swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from everyone's face. Isaiah 25. The dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. And the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 26. What does Jesus do? Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Matthew 9. 18 to 26. He has power over death. God also promised, as we read in our scripture reading, that the anointed one would have the power over sight and speech. Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. As if Jesus had anything left to prove. He shows us, in Matthew 9, 27-34, that He has divine power to give two blind men sight and open the mouth of a mute man. Case closed. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Anointed One that was promised in Isaiah and throughout the rest of the prophets. These miracles prove His authority, His power over all these opposing forces. And what Matthew wanted us to do, do you remember the main command repeated throughout? He says, behold. He wants you to sit back and watch Him work. He wants you to see Him prove His point. But at some point, listen, the watching needs to turn into believing and following. It's not enough to simply admire Jesus from afar, but after watching Him, you must realize He's the Messiah and come and surrender your life to Him and follow Him if He truly is the Christ. And so let's continue to watch Him work and let's have that watching turn into believing and following. And for those of us who are following Him, continuing to worship and glorify Him as we sing, all glory be to Christ. Let's look at this account. First, let's start with the two blind men. That's your first point in your outline. Two blind men. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed. Now, these men are desperate, determined, and dependent. Desperate, determined, and dependent. First, their desperation. Well, the reason for their desperation is obvious. They are blind. They cannot see. We're not told why, but the condition was common in the first century with inadequate health care. Blind men were left beggars. If you're blind, if you can't see, then you can't work. So blind men were often left beggars. 
Likely the case for these two blind men. They're desperate. And they're crying aloud, the text says, to Jesus. And we saw this form of speaking with the demons in the Gadarenes. Do you remember them crying out? It's like a yelling. It's a shrieking. It, it reveals the urgency. These men aren't, you know, whispering amongst themselves, Oh, have mercy on us, son of David. They're crying out desperate, Have mercy on us, son of David. Here's a yet another case, by the way, of someone coming to Jesus desperate. We've seen this throughout these two chapters. The people who come to Jesus are desperate. And I can't help but think at this point that if you don't come desperate, you don't come at all. Martin Luther describes this feeling in the German word, Anfechtung. There's no English equivalent in the translation. But this word describes the doubt, the turmoil, the pain, the tremor, the panic, the despair, the desolation, and the desperation that invade the spirit of a man through infliction or trial. And he says, this desperation leads the Christian to flee to Christ. That's what we see these people experiencing. Desperation. See, the people with something to lose, the people holding on to the things of the earth, they don't come. But the people with nothing to lose, they come. They find the Lord, and their desperation leads to His feet. For the blind men, as Luther describes, the desperation led them to flee to Christ, and they have a determined pursuit of Him. Desperation and determination. They're determined. The nature of the verbs here, when you see them following Jesus, they followed him and they were crying aloud. The nature of the verbs indicate this persistence. They didn't just do this one time. They were persistently following and persistently crying out, have mercy on a son of David. Have mercy on a son of David. Have mercy on a son of David. They're trailing him. And then if you notice, they started trailing him when he was coming out of Jairus' house. As Jesus passed on from there, that's when they started following. And they followed him all the way until he entered the house. Probably his ministry station. Uh, Jesus' temporary abode, right? Maybe offered by one of his disciples. It could be, some suspect, Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law's house. Kind of his station, but... These blind men followed from Jairus to Jesus' house in a determined pursuit. And if they're really crying out loud and yelling, it's almost as if Jesus is purposely ignoring them. Why? Well, it could be a couple of reasons why. Maybe he wants to continue to draw out their faith. Maybe he wants them to be an example to the rest of the crowd of what it looks like to persist and be determined to get to him. We don't know why, but we know that their persistence is rewarded. Desperation and determination are both signs of dependence, faith. They're signs of faith. These men believed. They believed. Jesus asked them in verse 28, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they respond, yes, Lord. Yes, Kyrios. 
Yes, Lord. I think about Romans 10, 9. How can a person be saved? Well, if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is a profession of faith from these two blind men. Confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they believed in their heart. That Jesus is who he says he was. That he had the power and the authority to save them. So their desperation and determination lead them to the feet of Jesus, revealing their dependence, their faith upon him. And Jesus rewards their faith. He says, according to your faith, be it done for you. And he heals them. But we got to see here from these two men. It's more than a simple desire to be physically healed or, have, or to have their physical eyes opened. There's more depth to their faith. And the depth is revealed in their cry. Have mercy on us, son of David. In that cry, you have a great petition and a great proclamation. A great petition in a great proclamation. It is a beautiful, beautiful cry. No matter how it sounded in the shrieking and the yelling, this is a cry that we can learn from this morning. Have mercy on us, son of David. First the petition, have mercy on us. Show us compassion, is what they're asking for. I love that. Show us compassion. They didn't just want Jesus' power. They wanted his heart. Show us mercy. Show us compassion. Is God compassionate? Is God merciful? Well, yes, he is. And by the way, Isaiah prophesied of that. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isaiah 49.10 They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. Isaiah 49.13 Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. Compassion and mercy flow out of the storehouses of heaven toward you. Sinners, filthy sinners like you and I, Receive compassion and mercy. And, and the nature of compassion and mercy is that it is undeserved. It is unconditional. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. It is freely given out of the heart of the giver. The heart of God flows and beats with compassion and mercy upon those who are afflicted. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who recognize their need and come to Him in desperation. And so these blind men find a sweet answer to their petition. They find that Jesus is compassionate. He is willing. You remember what the leper asked? Are you willing 
He is. Compassion is on his heart, it's in his words, and it's in his touch. He touches them. He puts his hands on their eyes, and they are healed. We need to see that all healing, whether it's physical or spiritual, all cleansing, is an act of mercy. It's an unconditional act. It's God relieving our pain. Mercy is not earned or deserved. It's received out of the goodness, kindness, and compassion in the heart of the Savior. Have you cried out to God for mercy? Have you asked in desperation for His compassion? And have you found the sweet answer that these blind men find? Don't look for sympathy in men. Don't look for compassion in another human being. Look to Christ for mercy and compassion. And cry out to Him for it. The petition, have mercy on us. Now the proclamation. They call Him what? The Son of David. Now these blind men were not skipping class in the synagogue. These blind men knew the prophets better than the scribes and the Pharisees. They call him with the, the, the messianic title, Son of David. They knew, as the scribes and the prophets should have known, and, and not just known, but recognized the character traits in Jesus, God promised David a son. In 2 Samuel 7, in his covenant to him, promised David a son of his descendants, one who would sit on a throne that would be established forever. It's the Davidic covenant. A king will come from you, David, who will sit on an eternal throne. And that promise is repeated throughout the Old Testament and in the prophets. Psalm 132, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he... He will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Isaiah 11.1 1, There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And there will be a branch from his roots to bear fruit. Jeremiah 23.5 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The Old Testament leans forward to a king. And the king is not David. The king is not Herod. The king is not Caesar. The king is the anointed one. The Messiah of promise. And the very first, ver ver <laughs> very first verse of Matthew, we're told who it is. Matthew tells us right up front, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one of promise, David's king. It's incredible, though these men are blind, they see. They see with the eyes of faith that Jesus is the king. I'll tell you, it's better to have closed eyes and an open heart to Jesus than to have open eyes and a closed heart to Jesus. It's better to have closed eyes and an open heart to see Jesus as the King and to believe in the Messiah than to have your eyes opened and your heart closed to Him. 
So these two men believe. They come to Jesus desperate, determined, and dependent in faith. They make a great petition and proclamation of him. And Jesus touches their eyes and says, according to your faith, be it done to you. I will heal you. And look at verse 30. Their eyes were opened. They see. Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind will be opened. Who is this? This is him. This is him, the Christ. He's the anointed one of God. The king with power over sight. And by the way, as Jesus opened the physical eyes of these blind men, your spiritual eyes need to be opened like these blind men were. They, their eyes were opened in faith to see and believe Jesus is the Son of God, the, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And you need that miracle done in your life if it hasn't been done already. You need God to open your eyes to see Him for who He really is. To behold Jesus and to surrender your life to Him. Now, with this healing comes a strange and stern warning. Jesus sternly warns them. He's, he's strict with this. He's, this is like, you better listen to me, kind of warning, right? Maybe his parents are, are, are seeing this uh, here, feeling Jesus' sternness. But um, Jesus sternly warns them. He says, see that no one knows about this. Don't tell anyone. Now, why does Jesus do that? Do you remember what he told the man who was possessed by the legion of demons? We're not told in Matthew. I think we're told in Mark that he tells the man to go and tell everyone about what the Lord has done for you. I was in the Gadarenes. Jesus is back in Capernaum now. Why does Jesus strictly warn this man or these two men, to not say anything? Well, there's a couple of reasons offered. I'll run through them with you. We're not told why in the text, and so there's some speculation. There are some viable suggestions here. One, it was not Jesus' time to die. Now, why is that a reason for a strict warning? Well, the thought is, the logic is, if these men went to the Jews and told them that the son of David, Jesus, is who he says he is. He is the son of David, and he validated that claim by healing their blindness. That might expedite his death. That's a suggestion. Another suggestion is that it was not his time to rule. These blind men declaring Jesus as the son of David, the promised king, and he proved it by his miracles, they might want to get him on a throne. After feeding the 5,000, we see a similar response from the crowd. They, they are trying to take him by force and make him king, John 6, 15. And Jesus makes it very clear in his first coming. I did not come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. And so it's not his time to die. It's not his time to rule. Or number three, Jesus just didn't want the unnecessary attention. There's already a great crowd following Jesus. Too many people are following him for the show and not for the surrender. And he didn't need a bigger audience. One that wanted a show. He wanted disciples. True followers of him. So maybe he didn't want the unnecessary attention in the Cabernet area. We don't know. It could be a combination of these things. 
but we're told that they deliberately disobey. They do exactly what Jesus told them not to do. They went away and spread his fame through all the district. They couldn't help but tell others about what happened to them. Now, what do we do with this? Is it okay to disobey the Lord if it produces a good result? Sometimes we justify our own disobedience that way, right? Well, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but I feel like, or this is the right thing to do, or you're just kind of thrust in the situation and you go, I'll just do it anyways. I don't think there's ever a good reason to disobey the Lord. Ever. God's word is explicit. Jesus' command here is explicit. These men should not have disobeyed him. But in God's providence, he used the fruit of their disobedience to heal another man. The deaf man. Or, sorry, not the deaf man. The mute man. The mute man. Okay? That's all that we're told at this point. They go out, spread his fame, and as they're going away, behold, here comes another sick man, or an ill man, a, a mute man, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to Jesus. And so their disobedience, God uses to perform another miracle. But it's not a license to disobey the Lord. So point number two, one mute man. One mute man. As they're going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to Jesus, brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. This is a straightforward miracle. Right to brass tacks. What happened? Matthew tells you what happened. For this man, there's a correlation between the demon possession and the muteness, which, by the way, was, was common. We see another case of this in Matthew 12, 22. There's a demon-possessed man in this story that was both blind and mute. So, in some way, the demon possession was related to the blindness or to the muteness. This man could not speak. Because when the demon had been cast out, the mute man then spoke. Again, this is just another reminder that demons are not like steroids. They're not enabling empowering forces. They seek to destroy. They seek to maim, to hurt, to abuse, to oppress individuals. They want to suppress the, the senses, whatever it takes to ruin the spiritual and physical well-being of individuals. But their power is no match for Jesus. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And so the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 35. Jesus is showing himself to be this man, the anointed one, the king with power over sight and speech. Now, that's point one, two blind men. Point two, one mute man. Two blind men, See, one mute man speaks, and now let's look at the responses. I want to spend some time here. The responses of two groups. So two group responses. I want to look at the two responses that we see here in verses 33 and 34 to evaluate them a little bit, and then I want you to assess whether our response should be like theirs. 
Should we respond either like the crowds, or should we respond like the Pharisees to the miracles of Jesus? So how do these, first, how do these two groups respond to Jesus' miracle? Look down at verse 33, the second half. And the crowds marveled. Marveled. That word marveled could be translated to wonder. Wide-eyed wonder. To be amazed. Astonished. Possibly to even gasp. Before they say these words. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. This might be a familiar word to you. This was unprecedented. Never before seen. Nothing like this. This man is unmatched. His power is unrivaled. They respond maybe similarly to those who responded to P.T. Barnum's circus. This is amazing. Wide-eyed wonder. Gasping astonishment. It seems positive. They are obviously impressed with Jesus. This crowd. But the Pharisees. Here's a contrasting response. But the Pharisees said. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's a different response. We might say that the crowd's response is positive astonishment. The Pharisees is a negative accusation. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, we've watched in these two chapters the growing hostility of the Pharisees toward Jesus. They don't like him. And their agitation is showing. At first, they accused him in their minds. You remember they were thinking, is this man blaspheming? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, responds. Chapter 9, verse 3. And then they start to accuse him in front of the disciples. They don't directly address Jesus when he's eating with the tax collectors and sinners. They go to his disciples and say, don't you see that your teacher is eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, now they're accusing him openly and in front of everybody. They're saying out loud, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Their attacks, their accusations are growing in intensity. And this is a significant accusation. They are essentially calling Jesus a servant of Satan. That's, that's, that's a big accusation. And Jesus is going, to direct, or is going to address this directly in chapter 12. They make the same accusation again. And so we'll wait until that point when Jesus directly addresses it to cover his response and see how Jesus responds to that. But for now, we see these two responses to Jesus. One, a positive astonishment. And two, negative accusation. How should we respond to Jesus Christ? Should we respond like either of these groups? The crowd or the Pharisees? Well, at first glance, we might suppose it's, it's better to be positively amazed than to make the accusation that Jesus is a servant of Satan, right? It's better to at least marvel, to be astonished with what Jesus is doing. 
But is it enough to marvel? Is it enough to sit back and watch and be amazed at him? To go, wow. You know, many who marveled at Jesus early in his ministry would be among the many who deserted him later. John 6, 66. Many who said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are among the many who yelled, crucify him, one week later. Many walk the broad road to destruction, and there are only few who find the narrow road to life. Now, I'm not saying that there are none in this crowd with saving faith. Maybe there are some. Some who genuinely believe. But I am saying this. It's not enough to marvel. It's not enough to be impressed with Jesus. There are many a philosopher and world thinkers that are on YouTube teaching talks about Jesus, talks about the Bible. And I'll tell you, they're impressed with him. But they don't follow him or surrender to him as Lord. They're marveling, but they're not believing. They're fascinated with Jesus, but it is not true, genuine faith. Jesus is not a circus act. He is not a a magician. He's not merely a good teacher or just a moral man. He's the Lord. He's the King. He's the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior. And so the right response to Jesus, the right way to come to him is not found in the crowd. It's not found among the Pharisees. It's found in the individuals who ran and fell at his feet, who pushed through the crowd just to touch him, who tore open a roof to get to him, who left their old life behind to follow him. The ones who admitted they're unworthy, sinners, desperate, broken, and needy. The ones who begged for mercy, for cleansing, for healing, for forgiveness, for resurrection, and for salvation. The ones who declared Him as Lord. The ones who said He's the Son of David, the King, the Savior. The ones in whom Jesus finds a little word, faith. That's the right response to Jesus and His miracles. To come to him desperate. To be determined, totally dependent, as good fruit of faith. Genuine faith. And I pray, as I'm working in this sermon, seeing the response of the crowd and the Pharisees, that you would not want to respond like them, that you would want to be like the individuals who found themselves at the feet of Jesus. Surrendering to him as King and Lord. I pray that he might find faith in you today. Because it is by faith that you're saved. It is by faith that you're justified, made right with a holy God. Not by works, not by being a good person like the Pharisees were, not by some moral standard that a religion sets for you or you set for yourself. You are saved by faith. By grace through faith. It's a gift of God that no man can boast. And the fruit, the evidence, the proof of this kind of faith 
It's in desperation, determination, dependence. Crying out to Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. You are the son of David. You're the king. You are Lord, Savior and Lord. So behold the King, Jesus Christ, and respond in faith. Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's the promise, you will be saved. Would you do that this morning if you haven't already? Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would do the miraculous work that only you can do. That you would open the eyes of the blind today. That you'd open the heart to believe in Jesus this morning. Any heart that's out there who has not yet surrendered in faith, that you give them faith. Eyes to see who Jesus is, that they would behold Him and surrender to Him and follow Him and worship Him. God, I pray for those of us who are in Christ, who have faith and who believe in You, that we would continue to follow You, that we would continue to confess our sin, to find ourselves as, as desperate sinners entirely dependent upon Your grace every day, we need to remind ourselves of Jesus every day. We need to see Him, set Him above us and in front of us to worship Him, to behold Him, to follow Him with our lives. God, may we never get caught up in a religious duty or, or do things because we, we think this is what we have to do to earn Your favor. We remember that we're the favored ones of God. We're, we're favored because of Christ, because of what He did. And out of gratitude, love, worship, and adoration, we want to do good works for your glory and out of thankfulness. I follow you with our whole heart surrendered to Jesus Christ. I pray that genuine faith would pull us to the cross. It would pull us to the empty tomb. It would pull us to the resurrected and ascended Son of God who sits at your right hand and who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Take our eyes to Jesus daily. We need Him. In Jesus' name, amen.